Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and each week we celebrate and commiserate with best-selling authors, parenting experts, and moms around the world. I try and pick the things that I do the best and, and delegate the things I don't, realizing you're never going to do everything. You can't do everything. And if you try and do everything, you won't do them well. So that's, that's really my yardstick. Hi, everybody. Okay, new listeners, go to iTunes.com backslash Atomic Moms. Subscribe. There's that little podcast app on your iPhone. Just hit it, search Atomic Moms. You can go through all of our archives. We have over 100 episodes on there. But I always say start with the most recent ones because they just keep getting better and better. (laughs) Okay, so most mornings I wake up and the biggest struggle I have is making sure my toddler doesn't whack me in the face. And that I don't forget her school lunch. And that I find the car keys to one of our cars. The resting mom face I catch in the mirror. Resting mom face, by the way, is resting witch face without the makeup. The resting mom face does not reflect the gratitude that could be welling up inside of me. No, resting mom face usually means I'm in my mom bubble. That mom bubble is the feeling that I get when I'm sort of out of touch with reality and distracted by everything that's within my own teeny tiny sphere. That's why I love this podcast. It gets me out of my mom bubble. It gets me in touch with the rest of the world, talking to you, inspiring mothers, and to our incredible guests. This week, we have an extra special one, Reverend Faith Fowler. She cares for and empowers. Okay, so I might as well say that she mothers. Because I think caring for and empowering is like the most important part of mothering. She mothers thousands in Detroit who have no safety net. The White House has even invited her to speak about homelessness. Makes me think I'm able to provide a warm breakfast for my child that I end up eating once it's cold. I get to send her to school. She's only three. A lot of people don't have that choice. I get to send her to school with a lunch. How lucky am I to have car keys to lose? Now look, a few of you just heard the word reverend and got a little nervous. We welcome all religions on Atomic Moms, just like we welcome midwives and OBGYNs, just like we celebrate breastfeeding and formula, working moms and stay-at-home moms. If you're preaching love, we are all ears. Best-selling author Mitch Album. Remember Tuesdays with Maury? He writes in the Detroit Free Press about our guest today. She is the most important currency of our city, a loving, egoless, inspiring leader who doesn't see color, doesn't see class, who looks at our poorest, most neglected citizens and sees only hope and opportunity and humor. Reverend Faith Fowler has been the senior pastor of Cass Community Methodist Church and executive director of Cass Community Social Services since around the time O.J. Simpson went to trial. She mentions that in her memoir, This Far By Faith, which, by the way, everyone I'm related to, if your birthday comes first, you're going to get This Far By Faith for your birthday. If Christmas comes first, you're getting it for Christmas. Fowler is creating jobs for the disenfranchised through her ingenuity, and not just any jobs, green jobs that help the environment. Who is she currently employing with her big ideas? Well, I'll just let Reverend Fowler tell you herself. 
formerly homeless people, mentally ill, developmentally disabled, people who had significant barriers to employment. Uh, many had been to prison and couldn't get work, didn't have a phone, didn't have an address, didn't have a work history. So we'll hear more about those programs during our discussion. First, I want to tell you a little bit about how I came across Reverend Fowler. Of course, it starts in a Los Angeles bar. When I hit on a boy wearing a Detroit Tigers baseball cap, I married that boy in 2007, and we ended up having our daughter in the hospital directly across the street from that L.A. bar. So last summer, at my husband's family's cottage, down at the little church where his great-grandparents used to go every Sunday in the summer and where our daughter was baptized, we saw the visiting Reverend Fowler speak. Here's what she said. All right, so I'm used to a church that gives me a little feedback, so every once in a while I'll just yell out amen, which is what I did after the music, by the way. You sat there silently. I don't know what's wrong with you. (laughs) (laughs) And then she speaks to us about the book of Ruth, and she kindly gives us a refresher. Naomi is Ruth's mother-in-law. Her husband and her sons have died, and she's telling her daughter-in-laws to go. Here's another moment from that sermon on letting go, recorded last summer at Epworth Church in Ludington, Michigan. Sometimes love instigates that letting go. I've seen it happen a hundred times at Cass. Sometimes it's pretty dramatic, sometimes it's not. I remember sitting with a young homeless woman, addicted, penniless, She signed the papers to give away her child, her baby, so that little girl would have a chance at a life. In her heart, like Naomi, she wanted to say, I love you, I want to keep you, I want to raise you, you're mine. But she loved her enough to let her go. I hope someday that little girl understands. You know, I've seen parents do all kinds of hard things. Even just a father walking into our free clinic with his little kids to get vaccination, and that that, that child is just, you know, cemented against his leg. He's so afraid of getting a shot. But the father does it because he knows it's good for the child. Love lets go. So the next day, I heard her give a talk on Detroit. And I got up the courage to go up to her. And I said, hey, hi, I'm Ellie Noss. I have Atomic Moms podcast, and you need to be on it. And she was like, um, oh, okay. (laughs) And I realized that she's this booming presence. But then one-on-one, she's so much quieter. I'm sharing our intimate conversation today along with clips from that sermon that has stuck to my bones. So some of it's phone call, some of it's her sermon. It's pretty clear which is which. I don't think I need to tell you each time. (sighs) This is a special one, y'all. I'll be right back with Reverend Faith Fowler. It's so funny. There's a cement truck outside our house, so I'm, like, in my daughter's closet recording this. (laughs) It feels so funny. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, first of all, I want to thank you so much for this summer. Our daughter was baptized at Epworth, and now I feel like I'm always going to link her baptism with, like, the place where I saw you speak. So, uh, Ah, it meant a lot to me. Thank you. 
What would you say is your life's purpose? Um, <laughs> well, obviously, I get the most joy out of trying to help people overcome poverty. That uh, um, it's a major problem in our area, and it's something I think uh, God has blessed me with some vision about. The other natural problem that I uh, tend to address is racism because it also is, you know, it's a national problem at this point, but uh, certainly it's been a, it's been an issue in uh, metropolitan Detroit. We've got Halloween coming up and you've got this Halloween haunted house that you've done for (laughs) years. And oh boy, have you had to deal with a bunch of BS with (laughs) them coming through, shutting you guys down, you know, all the bureaucracy. It's so annoying. And then this is the real topper. I read about the protesters and about how they were saying (laughs) that you were, (laughs) you guys with your church, that you were worshiping the devil because you were having this haunted house. So for our listeners, will you please share your response or your thoughts on that? So we really didn't get any uh, coverage, media coverage, until the protesters arrived. So I probably need to thank them for coming. Um, and, the, and then journalists would, uh, you know, print journalists, electronic journalists would call and interview. And, and always uh, the journalists would say, well, you know, how do you justify doing these demonic things? Um, to which I always responded something like, well, you know, there's nothing real in there. It's all make-believe. It's all fake. People are just pretending to be ghosts and goblins. And <laughs> I hesitate to say clowns right now, but clowns. And the blood is not real. And, you know, it's all make-believe. It's all for fun. It may scare you. Actually, we have people run out of their shoes and occasionally pee their pants, so it does scare them. But it's only momentarily nobody gets hurt. The truth is, though, I'm concerned about... Uh, what's really scary, what's what's really scary are, are kids sleeping in their car with their mom, uh, are having to wash up and sponge bath in the neighborhood park bathroom because they've got to get clean before they go to school, or living under a bridge, or, or sofa uh, surfing to, to try and stay warm. I mean, Michigan gets pretty cold. That's scary, and that's what we're doing this for, it, you know. It's just good old-fashioned fun. We're not worshiping the devil. Yeah, you're raising um, money for homeless women and children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what their daily life is. That's scary. Not a harmless Absolutely. haunted house. Absolutely. I got to say, reading your book, I was laughing so hard. I wasn't surprised after having the opportunity to see you speak, but... I mean, there's one moment where you describe being on a plane and the woman next to you is so nervous because she's never been on a plane and she's squeezing your arm and you say that it was like the pressure of a mammogram. And I was like laughing out loud in bed. You're like constantly surprising us with this humor. Um, and it's it's such a a wonderful way to get us to pay attention to the issues that matter. Yeah. Have you always been this funny? Um, my whole family is funny or, or was funny. Most, many of them are now deceased, but um, uh, telling a joke, telling a story um, runs naturally in our bloodline. Um, and I've found as both a pastor and as a, a leader of a nonprofit that if you can bring 
and use humor, it disarms people. It allows them to to relax and to, to listen and to cooperate. So it's been a great gift to have. Let me tell you a really funny story, and then because you'll have to talk about something at lunch. So we run this program for developmentally disabled adults. 135 people come every single day, Monday through Friday, that uh, used to be institutionalized. And we do things with them that, you know, you might expect. We teach them to write their name, to read a little bit if they can, to handle hygiene, to take the bus, this, that, and the next thing. And early on at CAS, we started this beauty pageant for them. It's a long story about how I objected to it for, for quite a while. But ultimately, we did this beauty pageant, and all the women are in evening gowns, and all the men are in tuxedos, and, and it's a great competition. 20, 30, not 40, but 20, 35, anyway, women participate every year, and, and somebody gets selected as Miss Cass, and somebody sings, there she is, Miss Cass Gordor, which is just the funniest, right? But... It's really good because every single woman gets to do her talent that she's worked on and then answer questions as if she's in the final ten. And, oh, I don't know, eight years ago we have a cover of, of the winner being selected, and, and there is the winner. She's in a victory V. She's so happy. She's won Miss Cass Corridor, and she's going to get this crown, and people are going to make over her and take her picture. And, and sitting next to her is Shirley, and Shirley, in the snapshot, this is a real thing, is doing this. Because right after the picture, she hit her. She hauled off and hit her, whacked her hard. Well, let me tell you why. Because Shirley had gone to Lapeer. It was a state hospital, maybe you know, at four. That's what we did back then. And she lived there for over 30 years. I can't imagine being dropped off as a four-year-old, but that's what we did. There is no judgment in what I'm saying. That's what we did. When she came out as a middle-aged adult, she didn't know how to do anything. So, so we taught her, you know, how to navigate the bus systems and how to count change and how to tell time and how to write her name. She still can't read. But she had been in Miss Cass for 10 years, and 10 years she lost. She was our own Susan Lucci. <laughs> and that year, when she hit the winner, she sent a message to us. And the message was, I'm smart, I'm talented, I'm pretty, I worked hard, I deserve to win. Love lets go. She never would have learned that lesson if we had just put her in a bubble and protected her forever. Of course, I told the story for a year, and the next year she did win. <laughs> you experience a lot of heartache mm. in your life. It's got to get you down sometimes, obviously. You seem to be incredibly invested in everyone you interact with. You know, you're the one dropping off this Christmas stockings for everyone. I mean, you are so involved. Not only are you the visionary coming up with these different programs that we'll speak about in a moment, but on a one-on-one -on -one basis, you tell a story about a boy whose mother's boyfriend kept taking the boy's paycheck. And mm. the boy needed out of the situation, and he called you. And you said, pack up your things. Don't let your mother or her boyfriend know. Call me. Just let it ring once, and I'm going to be outside in my car waiting for you. And he lived with you. You are so emotionally invested 
And how long after you lose somebody or after getting bad news, how do you rise up again? Well, um, there there certainly are discouraging times when when someone is hurt or someone is um, dead. (laughs) But there's always somebody else in line who needs help. Um, You know, I imagine as a parent, if you have more than one children, there's always... (laughs) There's always somebody sick or there's always somebody academically struggling or there's always somebody questioning if there's, you know, if they're in love or that kind of thing that, uh, that that's more than enough to, to keep you going um, and to remind you you still have more work to do. Um, I just went yesterday to the movies with that young man mm. um, uh, to see the Nat Turner movie about, about Birth of a Nation. And... Um, was a good afternoon. We're doing an upcoming episode on raising race-conscious children. And mm. you travel the country with your community. What is the name of your singing group? Is it the Ambassadors? Yes. So mm-hmm. you travel often with young Black men. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about what it's like to go to other parts of the country with a bus full of young Black men and how you all have been treated. Right. So the church normally sends out mission teams every couple of years because I I want them to have that experience of traveling, of of group building, of of giving in other places because so many people come to CAS to um, do mission work or volunteer activities, which means that, you know, sometimes it's a youth group and, and many times it's an adult group. And it it allows me, because normally I'm the minority, if not the only white person in the group, to see reactions of people in other places. And you know, sometimes in our country, we we label folks, oh, you're from the South, or you're from the wherever. Uh, but the truth is, we've had some rather negative experiences all over the country. In Boston, I remember going to check in, and the person behind the desk telling us no, that uh, their hotel was full, which of course it wasn't, but to try another hotel. And when we got there, it was all people of color. Um, and so it was very clear to me what happened. Uh, we went into a gas station in the middle of the night in New York, of all places. Uh, and they accused us of having counterfeit money uh, when the person behind the counter saw that um, you know, we were African-American people in the group. Um, we were coming back from Katrina. Our adults, young adults, had taken a week of vacation to go uh, really dig out black mold so new drywall could be put in. And on the way back home, um, across from Elvis Presley's uh, estate, uh, someone accused one of our volunteers of stealing, which, of course, she hadn't done, but she was black. And so those episodes are etched on my soul. That, that still in this day, and, we, and we've come so far in, in so many areas, but we certainly haven't eradicated racism. And um, it, it's because I've been privy or an eyewitness to those that it, you know, it burns in my heart that we have so much farther to go. So you also write, as a perfectionist, a pastor, and a woman, I am wired to make everything right and to care for everyone else. On a lesser scale, a lot of us feel the same way as moms. So do you have any advice for us? How do you handle
handle that because there's always more. I mean, especially with what you're doing. There's always, as you said earlier, there's always someone else lined up for help. How do you let yourself off the hook ever when things don't work out or when, how do you let go? John Maxwell talks about a a lion or a tiger trainer, I forget which one, using a stool. I'm sure you've seen it at a circus or somewhere else. They take a stool and they spin it in front of uh, the animal so that the animal will focus on the stool. And the thing is that the stool only has four legs or three legs, depending on the stool. And they do that because um, spinning it so that they'll confuse and make the animal focus, meaning we can only do a few things at a time. We can only do a few things well. Uh, So I try and pick the things that I do the best and and delegate the things I don't, realizing you're never going to do everything. You can't do everything. And if you try and do everything, you won't do them well. So that's, that's really my yardstick is picking the three or four things that I'm meant to do because God has gifted me with something and let the other things go. Make sure they get done, but I'm not personally responsible for everything. In Los Angeles, a lot of friends are looking at parochial schools for their children, but the religions Mm -hmm. don't necessarily line up with the parents' beliefs, especially in regards to homosexuality. Mm -hmm. Should they put their children in those schools or not? And what advice would you give? I'm a big advocate for public schools. I know that public schools aren't always the best depending on the location. And so parents uh, have the role of making the best choices for their children. Um, I also think that, that parents are the best teachers of, of a belief system so that if your kid is going to a school and they're Uh, teaching hate or or something else abhorrent, uh, you certainly need to counter that at home. Um, Boy, I I don't know. One of the things I've been most relieved about uh, here in Detroit is that I don't have children because I don't know. My dad was a public school teacher. I'm a believer in public schools, but ours are a shamble. I don't know that I would uh, jeopardize the intellectual growth of my child in a school that wouldn't challenge him or her. So if if I was forced to, to pick a school that was teaching religion that was not I was uncomfortable with, I would certainly spend more time on uh, sharing my belief system with my kids, even even more than homework, I think, so that they um, started with the same belief system our family had. That is such a great answer. More in a minute. Reverend Fowler, you've helped a lot of people through addiction. So often at CAST, it's about addiction, you know, to crack or heroin, heavy-duty drugs somebody's been using for two or three or four decades. And you say to them, if you don't stop using, you have to leave here. I love you, but you have to leave because I'm enabling you to commit suicide slowly, and I'm not going to do it anymore. And sometimes it works. And sometimes it doesn't, but love lets go. Can you offer any solace to a mother who may be struggling with her child's addiction? Yeah, I think uh, I think the old notion of tough love is really what uh, people in general need when they're dealing with addiction. They, uh, which is the hardest thing to do, because you always want to make life easier for your son or daughter, and yet when they're addicted, and it really doesn't matter the drug, even alcohol, 
Um, they need uh, structure and standards and accountability uh, because you love them, not because you're mad at them, because you love them and you're wanting them to make good choices. What what I know after 30 years of dealing with adults who are addicted is that until they're ready to stop, there's really very little we can do. So to help them get to the place where they will consider stopping is the best thing you can do. I've, uh, I've buried quite a few that didn't get there. And... Um, it's, it's always just crushing, and I can't imagine to be the, the parent of someone who loses their life to drugs. A lot of this podcast is about reparenting ourselves. Mm. What would you say to a new mother who is heartbroken looking back at the history with her own mom? let's say, because her mom mm. suffered from addiction or because her mother gave her up for foster care— how can that new mother not take it personally? How can she let go or forgive? Yeah. So there are no perfect parents. Let's let's start there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not, uh, you, that's you for sure. You don't get trained before the children arrive and um and you make mistakes. And the new mother will make mistakes. She'll learn that soon enough. <laughs> that, um hmm. So forgiving is probably a good word, uh, the mistakes uh, they made and uh, trying to focus on the love they had, that everybody wants to do a good job. Some are more capable than others. And, you know, I would say to a new mother, life goes so very fast to try and figure out what are the lessons you want to instill in your child and um, not like a bucket list, but, but making sure you don't lose lose that because time goes so quickly and, and because especially those early years are so frantic. I I marvel at, at people who have a child or more <laughs> under five at, at what it does to their life in terms of sleep and eat and, uh, you know, that the child gets sick, uh, how it just changes the whole family. So it's it's hard. It's just hard. It's amazing that any parents survive it. <laughs> or maybe I should say any children survive it. Um, <laughs> so, so not only do you need to learn to forgive your own parents, but you need to learn to forgive yourself to just to do the best with each day that you possibly can do. Um, and, then, and then not look back, you know. Because yeah. um, there aren't perfect parents and there aren't perfect people. Uh, you try and do the best you can. I love that you say that you marvel at these parents because I'm pretty sure that you act as a mother to countless families in your community. Yeah, but I don't have to get them all dressed for school and out the house with breakfast and a good attitude. You know, I mean, I don't have that. It, it is true that I that I count people here as my own, you know, uh, that that I'm related to them and responsible for them to a certain degree. But but I don't have that. They're not crying in the next bedroom while I'm trying to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And don't feel any need to answer this question. But I'm wondering, mm-hmm. you know, why have you chosen to mother this community and and rather than become a mother of your own child? What was that choice? Well, it, it, yeah, it's really a two-pronged answer. One is I didn't feel that I would be a good parent. Um, I'm not particularly patient (laughs) and, you know, children need that kind of nurturing that I don't know that I could give around the clock. 
A. B, they require time. And, um, and I don't think I could have split myself. I think either I would have felt that this organization would have suffered because I couldn't give it my undivided attention or my children and husband would have suffered. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to be that person. (laughs) I didn't want someone uh, mad at me because I wasn't invested the way that he deserved or they deserved. Um, And I know some women can do it. I just didn't think I could. Um, I had a serious relationship with a man uh, some years ago and basically what he wanted me to do is leave the organization and, and, and focus on him, which, you know, in relationships you're supposed to, I, I, I didn't want to be angry at him and I didn't want to be angry at the organization. And I, so my stool only has one leg. (laughs) (laughs) It's a, it's a big leg, but I try and focus on it. And, uh, it's got a sturdy leg. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Okay. We got to talk about, this green revolution you've got going on. Uh, so it was uh, 2007, 2008 here in Michigan. The economy was very sour, depressed. And our people who used to be able to get um, entry-level jobs, even passing out flyers or cleaning up at a McDonald's, or couldn't get any work at all. And so they began approaching me in droves about how could they get a job. And so I started looking for something that would be self-sustaining, wouldn't require government money or foundation money, that that I could sell a product and put people to work, and, and ran into this Native American tribe from uh, Oklahoma who was making mats out of tires. We have, we have tires in the gazillions here in Detroit. They're illegally dumped all over every lot. So asked for permission. The tribe spokesperson gave me permission to use their idea, and we started collecting tires. We call it tire hunting. What I love is how you said, uh, so we stole your land. Can I also borrow your idea? <laughs> and fortunately, he said yes and laughed, um, uh, or else I, I wouldn't have taken his idea because we've done enough stealing from Native American people. But um so we've picked up 55,000 tires to date and uh, have employed people since 2007 making these mats out of tires. And then we began using wood from houses that are demolished and glass that's repurposed, making coasters and keychains and um, planters and all things that were, were garbage were taken out of the, the you know stream going to the landfill or the incinerator here in Detroit and made into products that provide jobs. Uh, so we have 85 people working part-time, up to 30 hours a week. It's slightly more than minimum wage. I'd love to do a living wage, but I haven't found yet the product that will let me do it. Making things with the notion that it gets them back into the workforce, has uh, you know, gives them something to do, gives them a team to belong to, and money in their pocket. Uh, so that if they're ready to move on to another job, they'll have a reference and a resume. And if they're not, they'll stay making these things as long as they'd like. And these are people that... Oh, sorry, go on. Oh, oh, so formerly homeless people, mentally ill, developmentally disabled, people who had significant barriers to employment. Uh, many had been to prison and couldn't get work, didn't have a phone, didn't have an address, didn't have a work history. And Detroit had plenty of really good job training programs, but once you were done, there was no place to get work. So we weren't interested in that. We wanted something where they'd get paid from hour one. 
Um, and, and that's really the, the genesis of Green Industries. The, the program I'm most excited about is a brand new one, yeah. and that is we're building 25 tiny homes here in Detroit for low-income people, including homeless people, that, that they will own. So we've, uh, we've found a way to do it so they rent for a, a few years at a very inexpensive rate, and then the home becomes theirs after we've done some financial coaching and some home ownership coaching. So that, um, you know, if you're homeless or poor, you may have a job and you may have an income, but not enough. And if you get into a crisis or have an emergency, you're just stuck. If you have an asset, you can get a loan at a decent interest rate. If you have the opportunity to send your kid to college or something, you can get a loan. Um, so we're really excited about what this will do to allow people to, to climb out of poverty. Um, and there's been tremendous interest. I think we're going to end up with a thousand applications for 25 houses. You just had the first moving in, didn't you, last month? We had the, we had the press. We haven't moved anybody okay. in because I can't get people to stop peering in the window. <laughs> <laughs> they literally have, have destroyed our landscaping. Um, but we're building six more. We've just started pouring the next six foundations so that by Christmas, the first seven houses will be occupied, and then we'll start building again in the spring. One of your missions seems to be giving people the opportunity to, you know, work for themselves, to be proud of what they're doing, to help create a feeling inside a person that they can be proud or, or take ownership. And I was blown away by your Christmas shop idea. Can you please share that with our listeners? Sure. We had been doing Adopt-A-Family uh, since even before I came to CAS, and it, it really wasn't going well. <laughs> it wasn't going well in that some families were adopted with folks who were able to lavish them with everything under the sun, including bicycles and flat-screen TVs. And other families were adopted by folks who were able to maybe provide an orange and a book. And and so um, uh, both sets of donors had really good hearts and good intentions, but it wasn't, it just didn't feel good at the end of the day. And so we reorganized into a store format where we set it up. Uh, at this point, we're using 11,000 square feet to set it up that has uh, underwear and coats and boots and clothing and toys up the kazoo and books mm -hmm. and uh, families come in and, and they actually pay. They pay a dollar per child. So if you have seven kids, you pay $7. And you walk through and you pick out brand new boots and a coat and toys and uh, you get wrapping paper. You can take it home and wrap it yourself if you want, or people will ha help you wrap it here. And all of a sudden, the the whole feeling of the place has changed to to one of dignity and respect. You know, before off and often people want to deliver it to their homes, so the kids see the presents coming in, and and people are embarrassed. But mm -hmm. here, you know. I have purchased. I have wrapped. I have selected. It's that whole. Uh, peace leading up to Christmas that most of us love about picking out the perfect gift rather than having a stranger pick out something he or she thinks your child might like. I mean, you know, back in the day, my mother knew exactly what I liked, what color, what size, what, you know, what toy. Uh, it's the same if you're poor. It's just you don't have the ability to, to go to Toys R Us. And so we've become, in a way, the Toys R Us. Mm -hmm so that they truly can have um, 
that experience of selecting and, and, and gifting their children. And why do they pay that dollar? <laughs> well, <laughs> only because we want them to have the dignity of, of saying, I paid for it. I mean, if we get somebody who really can't pay anything. No, of course. Not, yeah. But, but then we use the dollar to pay somebody to watch the toys the night before so nobody breaks in and steals everything um, uh, the day of shopping. So it's not a fundraiser for us. It's really just meant to be dignity and safety of the, the store. I love that explanation. Do you have a question you wish you'd be asked? Oh, not really. We, uh, we're very grateful for the people who ask the questions. Well, thank you so much, Reverend Fowler. Until next week, trust in your goodness and live out your greatness. Rock on, Atomic Moms. Mm-hmm.